This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Matt Eret, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Germ, it's a pleasure to be joining you today. I thank you very much. I've been wanting to chat to you for a while uh, after watching that incredible documentary of yours. Well, I'm, I, I'm glad that it resonated with you. And I, I figured with the, the type of research that you've been doing, um, it, it would. I, I had a feeling it was going to. Um, but uh, yeah. I don't know if... Yeah, go on. Well, let's let's uh, talk about that. But before we do, let me ask you a quick question. How's the information war treating you? I mean, in me personally as an individual, um, I, I, I would say, unfortunately, quite well. Um, I, I say, you know, unfortunately, because I, I think a lot of people have, have uh, really been on a, on a massive uh, learning curve over the past two and a half years for obvious reasons. So there's a, a thirst and a hunger, which is unlike anything I'd ever seen in my life. Um, so in that sense, the there's a high demand for ideas that that carry weight and that, that can provide reasonable, rational explanations for how we got here um, with an, an, a, a look towards, I think, the future, which I've been trying to provide for many years is a, is a sort of sense that, OK, if you can really appreciate the causal mechanisms of what got us here and appreciate the fire in the house, you're better able to appreciate where the water has worked in the past to put out said fires, because this is not the first time. And we could take said uh, lessons and apply them now for our living future, since we are living in history. So in that sense, the circumstances are, are quite dire internationally, and, and that has resulted in a lot of people looking to figure out, well, where where are boats that float? <laughs> and that, that those are ideas. Yeah. Why are these ideas important, though? Well, I think we're the only creature that uh, defines our species character around concepts and ideas, uh, which have a, tr a trans material value. I mean, you know, other animals are more animated entirely by their genetic and environmental uh, dynamics and don't really shape concepts around like, I want to become a better bear or, or a, you know, more noble wolf. They just are what they are. And that's okay. That's perfectly okay for them. Um, but they can't leap over the limits to growth because of that. They cannot learn from past generations. You know, bears don't have a sense of my great, great, great grandpa who fought for bear freedom, you know, uh, way before I was born. And they're not going to make, they will make sacrifices in the present for their baby, baby cubs. Mm. But they're not going to be able to mod modulate their sense of self for the cubs unborn way down the line in a, in a way which, which uh, we can do as humans. So I think I... Whether or not we we align ourselves with truthful ideas that are in harmony with natural law, or or are in defiance of said law, is is really a question of whether or not we're fit to survive or not, and whether we're going to be enslaved by an oligarchical class, uh, mm. who themselves are devoted to a very specific set of very perverted wrong ideas that they're, they're religiously committed to. Whether we tolerate that indefinitely or not, I don't think um, I don't think the universe. Uh, has that in our destiny. Like, I don't think we're wired for that ultimate destiny to be just a slave society. I think we're, we're 
we were created for something better. So I think it's very important that people think in those terms. Or what's that cliche uh, with with knowledge is power and great power comes great responsibility. And you know, if we're if we really align ourselves with knowledge, we we have a power to do good or to do bad. You know, power power is a neutral thing. It's just power. I got a power to get off this chair. I got a power to cut my bread. I got a power to go across the street and like you know light my neighbor's house on fire. It's just a capability. <laughs> Um, but the, the question then is, do you have the, the, the moral, uh, di- uh, guidance inside of your heart and mind that work together to use power in a way, which is beneficial to your species and to nature? Like, I mean, you know, human beings can actually make nature better. We don't, we don't just destroy, it. um, or, or are you only going to pave over things or, or create deserts where there was what once lush, you know, forest and jungle, which we could also do if we, if we, if we're not careful. So yeah, I mean it's an irony. It's a it's an irony. What is your your background, your bio, and and how does it link up to the documentary? And what is the documentary for those who don't know? Sure. Um, well, the documentary. Well, my okay. So my bio um, that links up to the documentary, I suppose, doesn't necessarily. Um, it doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with. Um, it's hard for me to think about, well, what accounts for what uh, brought me to my current uh, path at the moment. Um, but I think one thing was um, in 2003, I was I was a student of fine arts and uh, I was focusing on film animation. And I found myself on a, on a, in a group uh, working on a project that involved some research into 9-11. And um, part of that assignment found me looking at some lectures and documentaries that I was just downloading from the internet to get a better sense because I didn't really know much of anything you know I didn't have much of a set identity in anything uh, intellectual I didn't I wasn't of the sort of I wasn't the sort of person who would like read books for fun for example um and you know in 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 the course of watching a few of these these lectures that I come across the typical thing happens that many people I think can identify with is you you realize that the the basic grand narrative that we've been given is is bunk and uh and i I found that there was actually rational a rational way of communicating facts and ideas that i could reproduce in my mind you know that that allowed me to make a discovery that this was true and i figured well if it's if it's communicatable according to reason then i have a power of teaching and that means that this uh shadowy elite that has been here for a long time for a very long time is not um all powerful as as i was led to believe um i had a few friends who were in the conspiracy theory sort of mindset and they hadn't they had done a very poor job over a few years trying to convince me to think outside the box and you know they were they were into the lizard people and there was um i found that in listening to their arguments they were not very persuasive because they made too many leaps of assumptions that i found distasteful so i was like i i it's too tinfoil hatty i can't go there so when I started finding that there was an actual reasonable approach and a method that could work to get at questions of broad conspiracy in history, um, I, I, I resonated very much to that and uh, made that a bit of a fixation. Maybe it was a bit unhealthy for a couple of years <laughs> of just trying to piece together, well, what actually is the case if everyone is living in, the, in, a, in a shadow land of being influenced by forces that they don't even, they can't even contemplate. This is tragic. This is really sick and sad. So it bothered me and I was obsessive and I, I really at least had a good habit. 
I picked up somehow, I, I don't know where I did, but to try to look for source material as much as I could. So when I started getting a sense that, you know, there, there are secret societies, you can't make sense of world history if you don't take into consideration the existence of secret societies. Um, and when I started encountering that, I would try very hard to, for example, do things like get my hands on Albert Pike's Morals and Dogma. So I, I had a, a friend, he was a, a rapper Mason and we did a trade. I, I did a painting of his, of his family and he gave me a second copy of, of one of his collectibles uh, of Morals and Dogma. And so I, I, I would try to read source material and come up with my, my concepts that way. And, and that was a good habit I, I developed, but it was still very disempowering. And I, I still didn't have a sense that, okay, well, if these conspiracies that are shaping our world today have been around for so long, is it is it true that there are real secret powers and secret knowledge knowable only to the inner initiates that we could not possibly measure up to? In which case, what's the point of even trying to to think about it if it's you know if if you're dealing with these godlike powers right that you're <laughs> that maybe they have their own reasoning too? That was part of my my journey is like that stupid line of thinking where you're like, well maybe all of the evil that they do, they have a higher understanding of a, of a higher order good that demands the, these evils of wars and famines and destruction. Actually, maybe that's the case. That, that was an unfortunate mode of thinking that I that, that held me back for a few months. Um, but I, I, after, at a certain point, um, I, I joined forces, right? I volunteered, less dramatic a way of saying it, I volunteered with a Canadian uh, branch of the uh, La, the LaRouche organization, which is a, at the time a, an organization founded by uh, the now late uh, economist Lyndon LaRouche. I don't know if you've ever heard of Lyndon. Mm -mm, okay, no. he's, a, he's a figure in American politics, but he also, I mean, he was 86 at the time. He, he died at 96 in 2019. And he had been around for quite some time. Uh, he set up a political organization in the late 60s. Um, and uh, had run for the presidency eight times, smaller candidate, but big ideas. And he had advised various governments. Indira Gandhi uh, had him, brought him in as an advisor in the early 80s. Uh, Lopez Obrador of Mexico also invited him to go to Mexico to create a policy to do battle with the IMF and the World Bank at a certain point in the late 70s. So, I mean, very interesting guy. And I found myself struck when I, in 2006, when I first encountered some of the organizers in Montreal because they had, you know, uh, street organizing, basically tables with literature and signage to try to provoke conversation. And I was on a smoke break um, at work one day at, a, at an advertising agency, and I don't smoke anymore. But I, but I, that's what I was I needed to at the time therapy. Um, and so I, one of the signs caught my eye, and it had some reference to the depopulation agenda. And and I was like, I can I can talk about that. So I, I had a conversation, and it turned out to be a a, a good one. And and so. When I saw that there were actually, they weren't just complaining about how bad things were, trying to tell people about how how enslaved they were to to a global conspiracy, though they did talk about those things, but they they were talking at least about well, what are the Achilles' heels? What are the points of weakness in this oligarchical system that have uh, exhibited themselves over hundreds, if not thousands, of years? What can we do today? And they had ideas that I could see reasonably could work. I didn't believe that it was possible because I personally believe the new world order was too strong, but I was like at least. It's reasonable and it can work. It could work feasibly. So I was like, okay, I, I got nothing better to do. <laughs> We're sitting on a big time bomb of an economy. I kind of realized on my own anyway that the economy was set up to blow up any, anyhow. So I was like, okay, th this is what I'll, I'll devote my, my energy to. And I did that for about a decade. And so in the course of doing, doing this sort of activity, uh, 
most of my free time was spent uh, organizing politically and doing a lot of work on, on there was a, a robust educational curriculum at the time as well um, in, in that organization focused on, again, rediscovering good ideas, powerful ideas that gave birth to upshifts in human understanding scientifically, going back to the ancients, platonic dialogues, a lot of constructive geometry. And so it was a good mental exercise to just discipline the mind. And I found that to be a very useful thing to do as well. And uh, I revisited some of my conspiracy theory research uh, when I began my Canadian Patriot magazine in 2012. It was an online magazine with a little off-print uh, publication just to sort of compile a lot of the research that I was doing on Canada with a few of my colleagues. Uh, we couldn't really find very many publishing houses or anything, so I decided to make our own our own uh, platform um, where we could showcase a lot of the the uh, the historic research that we pulled together looking at Canada from the understanding that we've always been under the, the control of the British Empire. You know, we looked at it from the evaluation of Carol Quigley and the, the Roundtable movement. So what was the Fabian Society? If, if you're aware that there has been these think tanks like the Fabian Society, the Roundtable, that have shaped so much of US, Canada, Five Eyes history, South Africa, definitely, that comes out of the, the Rhodes-Milner group. Um, how does that shape conventional wisdom or narratives about what Canada was. So that 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 was, I think, somewhat revolutionary, what we what we pulled together. It turned into four books that I wrote on the untold history of Canada as well, sort of a roundtable revision history of Canada. Um, and emerging out of that, uh, again, you know, you're, you're always revisiting the question of, okay, well, how does this color my understanding of secret societies uh, or make or or how does this new research induce me to appreciate more nuance within the within the secret society complex since obviously not all lodges are the same um sometimes at different times in history you get battles within within different masonic lodges what, what is that about so that that was useful to approach and and the documentary that uh we did it was my wife's uh, essay actually uh, who's also a, a very close collaborator with me um and a writer she uh, she wrote this wonderful essay on the origins of America's secret police, which um, my friend Jason Dahl, who's a, a very talented uh, filmmaker in, in Ottawa, um, and I collaborated to turn into a script, upgraded a little bit in terms of adding some some um, bookends, intro and conclusion, and uh, and turned it into this this thirty minute documentary on uh, the occult roots of secret societies, intelligence or, uh, operations, and so that that's sort of in, in I guess the quickest way I could say it. Mm. My, my past and what brought us to that video. A quote from your documentary. Know thyself, nothing to excess, surety brings ruin. That quote is exemplary of what one could call the Delphic method. If one wishes to understand uh, intelligence operations which operate through the manipulation of narratives, um, what some could call sophistry, uh, the, the, the taking of of actual information and spinning um, argumentation with flowery language or imagery that is seductive using certain other techniques um, in order to make the the a lie appear true so that it is accepted by a victim. That's not easy to do. You can't just get somebody to accept the lie. It's, it's a lie for a reason. You have to make it give it the appearance and the coloring of the truth. So this is something which has been obviously used for a, a long, long time. It's not just, you know, stay home, save lives. This is not like a new innovation 
uh, like, yeah, if I want to stay save lives, I should flatten the curve and stay home and you know do, do everything I'm being told. Like, obviously, they have to make that seem good, but that's not a new thing. So the Delphic, that was the opening um, segment of the documentary that that uh, my wife Cynthia had selected as a, a mental a tool, an intellectual tool, because at the when you enter the cult of Delphi or the cult of Apollo at Delphi, which was sort of a, a key node that was both operating uh, through a certain cult uh, managed by very high-level priests and grand strategists representing the interests of an oligarchical uh, system that was in place. And I mean, this, this particular story of uh, uh, King Croesus of Lydia took place in, I believe, the fifth, fourth century BC. And geopolitically, the, the system of the cult of Delphi or the cult of Apollo at Delphi <laughs> was a very important geopolitical uh, node, which operated with, for those, okay, so if you want to enter the cult of Delphi, and I'll say more what it is, or the cult of Apollo at Delphi, I always get the words mixed up. The, the inscription said, know thyself, nothing to excess, surety brings ruin. Now, that those are words of wisdom. The, if anybody who lives by those words are sure to uh, make better decisions than if they didn't. <laughs> um, so no one can deny that. The thing is that the, once you entered the cult or the, the temple, if you were a king or a general and all kings and all generals essentially had to, to go there to, pro, to receive guidance over what they should do geopolitically in terms of either initiating a war or a peace treaty or who I should make an alliance with. Like this was a big deal. It was sort of the top, the, the highest, most cult that all elites had to pay homage to. And, and you, you wouldn't just get an advisory group telling you what you should do. What you had was a woman, a young girl, usually, um, usually often, unfortunately raped and, and highly doped up. She was induced to sit over a cavern that had released some eth ethanol or methane gas. That was a bit of a, a, a hallucinogenic. They've actually found the location of the Temple of Delphi today, and they found that indeed there actually are crevices that induce or that have uh, methane that comes out and, and a few other gases that are hallucinogenic. So basically this poor girl is just doped up, rambling mutterings, and you have a grouping of high priests who um, decipher what she is saying and tell whichever king uh, what they, they want that king to hear. Now, the, the reason why the king is paying them a lot of money, because you had to pay a lot of gold. It, you, you always had to pay a lot of money to get uh, this service because the service wasn't the priest or the girl who was telling you something. It was supposedly uh, the, the god Apollo himself who expressed his his messages to humans through this girl, this, this priestess. Um, and only the initiates of the priesthood could interpret those symbolic mutterings or anything else, kind of like tea leaf reading or the, the augurs of, of the Roman Empire did something similar. Um, and, and thus the, the lower plebes who had gone through a few rites of initiation to be even permitted to enter the temple would then receive guidance, okay, go to war or not. So the story of, of King Croesus of Lydia is told as an example of how somebody who really is just too dumb. Like me, Croesus really didn't want to just, he wanted to defend the kingdom of Libya from the encroaching uh, Persian Persian empire that was pushing closer and closer on his borders. It was becoming, since Babylon, I mean, Persia had become, and that's another story, but Persia had become 
a bit of the the martial lord for Babylon and the Babylonian priesthoods of Marduk uh, a few centuries earlier under Cyrus the Great. Um, Mar Marduk was the god that was sort of a proto-Apollo. So the, the god Apollo of, of the Greek world is essentially the same god as was Marduk, the god of gods of the pantheon of Babylon. The Babylonians utilized certain... And again, like any civilization, there's good and bad elements of the culture, but it had gotten very corrupted, especially under these, these mystery schools, that at a certain point realized that Babylon was not a, pos a, a very effective instrument for global dominance. They had extensions all the way to the east, to Asia, to India, and extensions into the Mediterranean, but they couldn't really, they didn't have the military clout to get a lot of the work done that they needed to get done. And so they they transposed themselves in a certain way, and there's a story that that, that is told around that um, um, in a book that I had read, which the name I'm forgetting all of a sudden, but basically they, they transposed themselves um, onto Persia. And when Cyrus the Great, you know, it, it, it's told that he took Babylon, the Persian Lord, right? The Persian emperor. The first thing he did is when he does when he gets into Babylon is he sacrifices to Marduk. And so it shows you who's really running the show. And about a century and a bit more later is, is when you now have Marduk, the Marduk god and, and the priesthood of, of Marduk had transposed or at least retooled itself a little bit with new, new words that would be more uh, for a different target audience. That would be a, a Greek art, a Greek audience. But essentially, again, oh, same thing. A lot of these gods are essentially just given new names, but do the same thing. Gaia, same thing. Sibyl. Um, so King Croesus of Lydia is somebody who wanted to, to defend his kingdom, but he was stupid enough to think that he could get good guidance from the god Apollo. He did the sacrifice. He paid a, a ton of gold. Um, and ultimately, by following their advice, as, as the story in the documentary goes through very briefly, he undid his own kingdom. And he, he was told, you know, if you go to war right now, a great kingdom will fall. And he was like, excellent. The kingdom will be Persia, that which will fall, and I'm going to go to war. And unfortunately, it turned out to be his own kingdom. But the prophecy, one could say, was right. But he was not wise enough to read or interpret the uh, the cryptic messaging he was given by the uh, the priesthood. Now, did the priesthood actually want that outcome the whole time? I would say, yeah, probably. And by looking at the um, the structures of control over the next two thousand five hundred years, they've always used something similar to seduce, dump like people who are mystically mind or superstitious they need people who don't know how to use who have not taken the time to use their own minds as tools responsibly and are still locked in a realm of superstition to then uh be seduced to come in as initiates into their you know um there are different lodges that that took on different incarnations over the course of the Roman Imperium period. You know, it had there were still rites of initiation. There were still different forms of lodges. They weren't called Masonic lodges. They were called other things. But you still had things like the Sibylline books, which were still used for a thousand years of Rome to, which were the the transcriptions of the the mutterings of Apollo via the priestess that were transcribed in the Sibylline books that were used by every emperor and every general um to again decide whether you go to war or not or how do you manage your your battle plans um so again the force and and the sibling books were always interpreted by an official group of the committee of 15 for the roman empire and that that committee of 15 were essentially the priests that represented the higher bloodlines the higher families um that would manage the world the world island or the the great game 
So, you know, over the years, again, it took on different incarnations, but it always required the idea that there was secret knowledge that you would be uh, inducted into experiencing. And as you would go through these rites of initiation that would, you know, um, have an, an aura of the occult, of the myst the mystical, it would induce a certain sense of wonder and also have the, the target victim lose their, their personal sovereign identities more and more as they would process themselves with the pursuit or the promise that, okay, soon you're going to get the real secret knowledge. You know, you have very, very uh, varieties of this from the Scientologists too, that are, um, are modeled on very similar structures, right? Where you have people who have been in the Scientology for their whole lives who come out and they're like, yeah, I finally got the secret knowledge after giving millions of dollars and, you know, selling my soul. And I, I got a briefcase and it was just, there's now shape-shifting aliens from uh, stuck in volcanoes for billions of years who are like inside of our bodies and, like, so that's, that was the secret knowledge. <laughs> it's, um, so I think it, it's it's really just that. So part of the documentary, just to, to round it out, that Cynthia had and I had in mind as an intention was to really just try to demystify what is something that people give too much power to. We give power to the the secret these secret societies um, far much more than they deserve. And so we wanted to demystify that, take a little bit of the... the the, the power away from that and, and just showcase, well, what are the types of, of human attributes that these societies mm -hmm. are afraid of? When you look at the examples of, of certain exemplary human beings like Abraham Lincoln, John F. Kennedy, whose speech we ended with, or, or Martin Luther King Jr., or, you know, you just look at certain figures who really do exude a quality that um, represents a deep fear um, on the part of the oligarchical class that manage uh, their their cattle through these secret societies but then you jump almost to what about the 18th century to the scottish rite of freemasonry now why yeah. is that significant it was significant because that was and i mean we could have used other points of filler between King Croesus, uh, King Croesus of Lydia's downfall and uh, and the Scottish Rite of the of the late 18th century or early 19th century, uh, we could have brought up Rosicrucianism. We could have brought up Robert Flood. We could have talked about a whole variety of things regarding intelligence operations in France and in in, in England uh, during the the Renaissance period. We could have talked about the Templars as well and how the Templars were created as a synthetic cult. Um, to, to make way for the, the Crusades. We could have done these things. Um, but I guess the, the point of that, because the documentary, it's 30 minutes, so we had to really be selective. But the Scottish Rite is a particularly virulent um, sect of Masonic lodges. Um, again, not all, not all lodges are created equal, and, and we have seen, especially during the course of the American Revolution, that there were... Um, enemy lodges, some of which represented ideas, sets of ideas that were anti-oligarchical. Um, in many ways, some of these, these lodges, you know, before the days of the internet, where you did need to maintain a lot of secrecy and communications and, and coordinating um, act, political actions across vast expanses of space and time, right? Because there were oper operations throughout Ireland, uh, Russia, Alexandria, uh, uh, Tsarina Catherine the Great played a key role um, with the Russian intelligentsia in managing the League of Armed Neutrality that created a space for the American revolutionaries to conduct a battle with the world's biggest empire. Um, you had 
Irish generals as well uh, that worked with the American revolutionaries. You had people in, in Morocco, the Sidi Mohammed, the emperor of Morocco, played a role also in helping to protect American shipping from Barbary pirates. <laughs> you even had in India, the Mysore, the Mysore rebellion under Hyder Ali and uh, Tipu Sultan, who also uh, were working with Benjamin Franklin's networks via French diplomacy to do battle with the British empire in India. Um, so it was an international fight, the American revolution. Um, and part of the, the need to maintain secret communications, and there was gang, counter-gang, triple agentry, there was a variety of things. I mean, it was, it was an intelligence warfare operation. It was not an easy thing. And a lot of people try to, and I, I guess I fell into this trap too for many years, um, is we oversimplify things when we discover that Benjamin Franklin or George Washington or Marquis Lafayette or many of these players were often operating through Masonic lodges. We're like, okay, the conclusion many people would come to and again, I did too, and I um, was that it's all a giant Masonic fraud. There really wasn't anything special about the American Revolution. It was just the, the, the Masons giving us a new form of enslavement with the more with uh, the the maybe the, the colorings of uh, democracy, but not really any of the reality. Because look where we are today. Um, was sort of the logic, right? But then no, there, there's actually assassinations going on between the lodges. There's different factions of lodges that are utilized as conduits to get across secret messages, to get across court, to coordinate, and to carry out a, an idea that human beings are made sacred in the image of God versus other lodges that are the, the religious idea that human beings are made in the image of mud to be managed by a, a, an empire. <laughs> so very different ideas of human nature and God and, and natural law in both cases. So that was purged. By the time the French Revolution turned into a giant bloodbath of, of chaos, and it was, I mean, it was a disaster. It was, it was a complete failure of a revolution. And it was a failure largely because of people's inability to appreciate uh, actual, you know, British intelligence operations and Masonic operations. Sorry, but is, that, turned into is, that, is that an alarm that I'm hearing? Yeah, there's an alarm. I, I feel like I should. Seems Do you mind if fun. I just run and check that out? Sure. This is a carbon monoxide detector. Always good to have a carbon monoxide detector in your house. But they can be. Uh, oh, hello. Warning: Carbon monoxide, monoxide de Dude, uh, I, li I live in Africa. <laughs> we don't have such things. Yeah. So by the um, by the time the the French um, Revolution turned into a bloody terror, the there was a vacuum essentially um, of leadership. And that this vacuum was filled by a proto-fascist by the name of Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, which unleashed about 20 years of, of war in Europe. During the time of chaos of, of this war in Europe, at least those lodges that had been utilized by the various humanists who had a, an idea of creating, I guess what you could say, city, Augustine laid out in, in the course of his city of God, which is a, a society that would be, become psychic spiritually or to the point culturally where they would where the love of wisdom and the pleasures of wisdom and the pursuit of wisdom and the sharing of it would be the understood as what animates the identities of the majority of the people living in that society and, and that type of society um would be one that could have a democracy that could self-direct where their sense of duty and pleasure and freedom were not in opposition to each other but that would require a very elevated sense of, of again cultural aesthetic and, and intellectual development and people like mozart were members of various masonic lodges of vienna um for that reason 
so is Benjamin Franklin. And the idea was to demystify the symbols, demystify the, the, the different geometries and make it intelligible. And you could see it by the, the lodges of people like Schenkenader of, uh, of Mozart's lodge, who was a leading scientist and was produced periodicals, magazines for the population to, and also educational processes institutionally that were based upon giving people a sense of, well, what is the golden section? Don't just worship the Pentagon. Look at, well, what is, what is the geometry embedded within the Pentagon that is intelligible to all people, regardless of whether you're an, an initiate or not. Um, and you can see it in nature. You see it in, you know, the Greeks were using it with the, with the creation of their, of their architecture. We see it in the Renaissance architectures as well. So that movement was stomped out by, I would say, the early part of the, the 19th or the opening of the 19th century during the Napoleonic Wars. A lot of these lodges were purged. They were destroyed and, and a lot of the humanists were wiped out. And I, by the time the Napoleonic Wars were over in, the, in Europe, um, I don't see much evidence that there were, were any remnants of said humanists in active positions anywhere in Europe, especially by the Congress of Vienna of 1815 which is really like the restoration of the oligarchies after the age of Napoleonic Wars. And the, the, the argument spun then was, you know, the, the chaos of Napoleon was caused by the, our, our giving too much creative and intellectual liberties to the people uh, in the 17, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, and their desire for freedom resulted in this chaos. And so we can't allow the instability of freedom anymore. And we have to have the restoration of the monarchies, the oligarchies, and, and that was that. And the lodge systems reflected that. In the case of the United States, the Scottish Rite were created in 1801 as an outgrowth of, an, of a police agency of sorts that was in South, uh, South Carolina. And it was uh, set up by a leading British um, general named Augustine Prevo. And Prevo was a leading um, Freemason. I don't know if he was York Rite or whatever. I'm not too sure. But he created this, this lodge system that became, it was given the name Scottish Rite um, in 1801. And it always sort of served as a point of organizing many of the stay-behinds, sort of the, uh, the British United Loyalists who would masquerade as, as American patriots on the surface, but would always remain loyal to the city of London as the causal sort of hand that they would always worship and receive orders from, both within the southern states, um, the slave states, as well as in the northern states around New York. Um, people like Aaron Burr were big leaders within this this faction of traitors. This is the proto sort of deep state of America today. You got to go back to this period to understand where the deep state <laughs> came from and what, what it's a direct continuity. And by the time um, by the time the the Civil War rolls around, um, you have both an, a, a northern and a southern branch of the Scottish Rite. The southern one is retooled by the figure of Albert Pike, who I'm, I'm, I'm sure all of your audience knows very much about. Um, and he retooled, he's, a, he's somebody who's a Confederate general, you know, he's, he's, he was a leading figure within uh, the Confederate uh, military, as well as the executive bodies of, uh, of the Confederacy uh, that were always themselves agents and operations controlled and deployed by the British Empire, which I go through in, in a few of my books um, on the untold history of Canada. So Albert Pike essentially adds some dimension, adds some rituals. He's a, you know, a devout Kabbalist. Um, he's also somebody who plays a certain role in founding the first domestic terror agency inside the United States called the Knights of the Golden Circle, 
in response to the abolition of slavery that Lincoln uh, had just done a few years earlier, which had resulted in the case of like South Carolina, like half of the state legislature were black slaves who were elected in the in the 1870s. You could see the configuration of the South Carolina state legislature uh, and state senators, and half of them are black people. This is a this is the state where 80 years later, you weren't allowed to vote if you were black, you know, where there was Jim Crow laws and lynchings. So you're like, how did that happen? How did that regression happen when things were moving in such a positive direction after the Civil War? Well, you have to look at, again, the 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 murder of Lincoln resulted in the his enemies taking more control um, over U.S. cultural policy. You have to look at the Scottish right playing a key role as organizing many of these different factions. And you have to look at the KKK, which emerged out of the Knights of the Golden Circle as, <laughs> you know, the first, as I said, the first uh, intelligence agency, agency controlled and directed terrorist, domestic terror cell, and instead chose to keep them stuck on the slave plantations with cash cropping and other things, or, be, or sharecropping, where they became essentially nominally free, but still economically beholden to the same landowners that had formerly whipped them and owned yes. them. Now they weren't physically owned, but they were still monetarily owned, very similar to what we did to Africa and much of the, the, the former colonies of the world after World War II, is you gave them political independence, but you don't give them economic independence. Mm. Same sort of thing happened there. And again, the Scottish right was a, was a key role or played a key role in, in organizing that. So, so the KKK were legitimate um, controlled opposition. It was it was completely controlled opposition. And uh, I mean, well, the difference there is, I, I mean, you still had patriots who were legitimate, authentic American nationalists in active positions of power. Um, even after Lincoln was murdered, um, you still had people like Ulysses S. Grant. You, you had various patriots like uh, William Sumner, the, the, the secretary of state. Who, uh, and many others who were still in a in a top-down position to do battle with this oligarchical uh, process, and so <clears throat> yeah, the the KKK was among a variety of operations that were used. That was more from the south. You had northern operations as well. Albert Pike, keep in mind as well, he was a. I mean, some people deny it, but you know, he was a correspondent of none other than uh, Giuseppe Mazzini. Who was a leading uh, Italian Freemason, very high level, and he was the founder of the uh, the Young Europe movement. The Young Europe movement being just a, a movement created alongside Lord Palmerston as well, out of the British Foreign Office, which which found better techniques to utilize what they did in the 1790s around the youth uh, and disenfranchised poor of, of France to basically mm. weaponize the the French people into a battering ram of Jacobins as a mob and deploy them in a way that the mob didn't know how they were being deployed. That was a bit messier, but it became a bit more scientifically refined by the 1840s and 50s during the other, the, the new wave of revolutionary activity under the Young Europe movement. You had Young Ireland, Young Britain, Young Germany, Young Poland. You had Young America too. And the Young, the, the Southern branch of Young America was represented as well uh, by Albert Pike. And uh, George Saunders, who was the head of the Confederate secret intelligence operations in Canada that were uh, that were running terrorist operations against Lincoln from the north. That was George Saunders. He was he was Mazzini's close confidant and right and, and somebody who spent a lot of time under the Pierce government. Franklin Pierce was a Masonic government of America in the 1850s. Mm. And um, George Saunders was, I believe, his ambassador to England 
And that's where he cultivated many of these networks, spent a lot of time in the Mazzini salons. And so he ran the the Montreal, the Canadian uh, Confederate intelligence operations, along with another guy, Jacobson, um, that coordinated the killing of Lincoln, that coordinated, again, like the Albany raids, many terrorist activity, um, and worked with people who were nominally pro-Lincoln, but in reality, as we discovered only afterwards, were always working for um, the city of London to destroy the United States from within through mostly Wall Street and the Wall Street uh, operation. So, yeah, I mean, you, but again, you had this young, young America branch in the north. And ironically, in the north, it's somebody who has become a big um, uh, almost godhead for much of the modern ecology uh, movement. Uh, Ralph uh, Waldo Emerson was the head of the, the Mazzini Northern uh, North America, um, young, young America movement, while uh, Pike um was the head or one of the heads of the southern branch of the young america movement but in all cases it was the same thing same effect the statue of albert pike happens to be quite in quite close proximity to where a certain mr hoover operated from yes well that's right and and i mean today and cynthia went through this in her essay and, and in our documentary but the um that's right the Pike's body was interned in the Washington branch of the Scottish, Scottish Rite Lodge. And in that same institution, you have not only Pike archives of, of his writings, where, where these Mazzini letters were found, but you also have a replication of J. Edgar Hoover's office, that's right, at his desk. Because J. Edgar Hoover was a devoted cultish fanatic of the, the Scottish Rite Lodge as well. I mean, he really believed it. And I would say in my research, not every single member of the Scottish Rite, sometimes people have used the institution um, for political power to, or to sort of gain an insight. You know, you have people who've been inside a lodge who have gotten insight or counterintelligence of what's going on, or they just simply fake it in order to get some influence, and then they do something out of character. So it's not always so clear to put a label always on, okay, Mason equals evil you know there's always you have to take the time to look at the nuance and look at well what is the quality of action that the person is doing whether they are in or not in an op uh, a masonic lodge or not but hoover is somebody exemplary of like a king croesus fool who was an underdeveloped psycho-spiritual mother-dominated cross-dressing freak um who just was really other directed like he's he ego stripped himself willfully early on and you know when the when the FBI was created in in uh, the early 1900s under under Teddy Roosevelt, and this could only happen if if uh, Willie McKinley was murdered. Willie McKinley was not the type of person to let the sort of secret policing operation come into being inside of his country. He was a real patriot, and that's why they killed him. Well, they killed him for other reasons that other he was doing other things too that were interesting. But Teddy Roosevelt was a Confederate romantic, and he's somebody who who didn't really like Lincoln. He was nominally Republican, but he was vice president to uh, to William McKinley. So when McKinley dies, you know, the vice president usually is positioned as a, as a shithead to uh, to take power. And he quickly works with a fellow who's actually a cousin of Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, I think his name is Charles Bonaparte, who's his attorney general of America, right? A, a Napoleon, a member of the Napoleonic family is, is a member of, or is a, is a, is a, a, an attorney general of the United States. And they worked together 
to create what becomes the, the FBI. They're advised by MI5 operations. So they're actually modeling themselves off of MI5 that had only just recently been set up, I think a couple of years earlier. Um, and, and that's the first time the US has sort of a pseudo independent secret policing operation, which is run by a fellow named uh, Palmer, who conducts um, more domestic terror operations throughout the, uh, the World War I period and a little afterwards. Um, where they basically are nominally cracking down on Bolshevik operations or communists in America. This is before the Cold War, right? This is World War One, But in reality, they're targeting people that they just don't like, dissenting voices who represent real nationalist American patriotic traditions within academia, military, government unions, um, who are anti-imperial. And these are what the real targets uh, actually always were, um, just... And they use the same technique after World War II to basically, you know, call anybody who was troublesome to the the uh, wannabe gods of the world who were actually resisting. They just painted red commie on them and then just destroyed them. Um, so J. Edgar Hoover cut his teeth working with Palmer, managing agent provocateurs, false flags, other things, a lot of domestic terror operations. He empowered a white Masonic group. Uh, within or a faction, a white Masonic lodge that he basically brought in called the Fidelity, Fidelity Chapter into the Federal Bureau. Um, and uh, and he empowered the Jim Crow laws. He, it's, I mean, if anybody wants to know why it was that blacks that had formerly been uh, members of the elected government of the southern states after World War, uh, after the Civil War, why were, why were they being lynched and why were they uh, not allowed to vote or drink in the same uh, water fountain as whites by the 1950s and 60s, they have to look at J. Edgar Hoover's role in, in re-empowering the, uh, the segregation uh, process, which is also tied to a foreign policy, too, that was aligned with maintaining a, an Anglo-American or a relationship of obedience to the British Empire, kind of like the way Persia, as I mentioned earlier, was sort of the marcher lord for Babylon. That was sort of the designated role that Britain wished to have for the United States was to be its to serve as its marcher lord and use it as a conduit or a battering ram to reconquer the nations of the world. So Jager Hoover also played a very important role in that function as well. Hoover and the FBI mm. were essentially the shadow government. Yeah, I mean, he, he presided over eight presidencies, uh, Jager Hoover, as the head of the FBI. And uh, and he he did... I mean, I didn't know this until Cynthia brought this up in her paper, but um, yeah, he, he he demanded that his um, his operatives, his, his FBI, at least the higher level uh, operatives who were loyal to him or most loyal to him, because he operated, he made the whole thing kind of work as a very compartmentalized uh, bureau where many, in many cases, the right hand and the left hand didn't know what they were doing. And he did that by design. It, Empires will always do that. They want a highly controlled, highly fragmented bureaucratic system so that the people working within various sub-departments don't know what is going on over the fence. Um, and that's how you get a lot of, you know, naive but otherwise well-intended people serving as conduits or instruments for uh, a destructive uh, design that they can't even fathom themselves. Compartmentalization. Um, so, yeah, Jake Hoover certainly had an immense amount of power even in the 30s you know part of one of the stories brought up in that documentary uh, features um, a figure who who franklin delano roosevelt uh 
had intended, he was a close ally of Roosevelt, and Roosevelt intended for him to become the um, the Attorney General of the United States, um, a senator whose name is escaping me. Watch the documentary. <laughs> um, and this figure was uh, an absolute arch nemesis of Palmer and Hoover throughout the 1920s. He conducted the Senate committees on the abuses of the FBI and Hoover specifically, and he vowed to fire Hoover as his first act as attorney general in 1933 when he was inaugurated. And the problem there was that on the day of his inauguration, when he was on the train um, to Washington, D.C., he arrived dead. So they say heart attack. Um, I think we've got reason to believe other. Um, Franklin Roosevelt is another character who's interesting because he's somebody who broke, broke very much from profile. He was, you know, in the course of, I think, 30 days or something, or maybe two months, he was made 33rd degree Mason when he was not even 31 years old. Um, he was a young guy. He was he was an aspiring president, you know, in the early before World War One. He was from a, a higher crust family, you know, that had been around uh, since the American Revolution. And um, and there was a it was believed that they, he could be handled and controlled. So he was putting on the on the streamline. It took it took J. Edgar Hoover something like 40 years or something to become a 33rd degree member. They made Franklin Roosevelt uh, a member in like like I said, it's like a month and a half or something. You know, like he didn't go through any of the initiations. He was just like, okay, you're in. And the idea was, you know, they thought, okay, once you're in there, we control you. Now for Franklin Roosevelt, I think for a variety of reasons, he broke from profile of what he was expected of him. It happens. It happens from time to time. Human beings do have consciences that sometimes overpower their uh, other uh, other connections. And his polio, I think, played a role in that too. It, it, it woke up a lot of humility. Um, but coming out of that process, he developed a strong disdain for the hereditary structures of empire and uh, made it very clear that he wasn't gonna play along. And one of the earliest things that happened as soon as he was elected, which was a miracle, because there was, the JP Morgan machine was working against him the entire time that, you know, before and during the Democratic Party Convention of 32, um, Paul, uh, there are some nationalists from both parties who worked to ensure that the, the J.P. Morgan agents would not become the, like Thomas Lamont, would not become the, the head of the party. But when, as soon as he was elected, there was an immediate assassination attempt where you had a, uh, an Italian Freemason named Giuseppe Zangara who uh, fired five shots at Roosevelt. Luckily, a woman in the audience hit his hand and he killed uh, the mayor of Chicago, Cermak, who was standing right next to Roosevelt. Um, there was another attempt to uh, by J the J.P. Morgan machine to run a coup d'état to kill Roosevelt, install a, a puppet general named Smedley Butler in 1934 um, as puppet dictator of the United States. That would that would then align the U.S. with with Nazi Germany and and uh, Mussolini as part of the first attempt at a new world order. And they did that because, you know, like Frank, Franklin Roosevelt not only went to war with Wall Street, he broke banks, he, he, he brought J.P. Morgan Jr. to, to, to trial. You know, he, he, had, he gave Ferdinand Pecora, his leading, uh, a leading uh, lawyer, full subpoena powers to bring as many of these Wall Street financiers to court as he wanted. And he did. And he put hundreds of bankers in jail for the crimes that they did, gambling with people's money to create the bubbles that blew up in the Great Depression, which was a controlled demolition. Just like today um but it was a major war he broke up the banks like i said into uh savings versus uh investment banks and you couldn't gamble with people's savings uh, so pulled the rug out from the one world government conference in 1933 in london right you had the london bankers conference too 
where the idea was to to solve the, the global Great Depression by creating a new banker's dictatorship under the a new set of mathematical controls run by the Bank of England and the, the Bank of International Settlements. And Franklin Roosevelt pulled the American delegation out of all of the proceedings and sabotaged the conference and, and bought us a lot more time. So he was really, really not playing ball. And uh, and that's why I think they had to kill one of his right-hand men, uh, the figure who I'm, whose name I'm still forgetting, the senator who's going to become attorney general. Now, the J. Edgar Hoover operation, it basically created a bit of a, a dictatorship. There was a fascist dictatorship after World War II inside of the United States. And people underestimate what level of control he had had managing. I mean, it was it was... People were ratting on their neighbor. It was so Orwellian, um, mm. where you know, Franklin Roosevelt had had worked very hard to establish a post-war uh, order premised around U.S.-China-Russia collaboration and the extension of great development projects to Africa, to South America, to India, to China, around with the Tennessee Valley Authority, and the, the the electrification projects of the Tennessee Valley South had had been able to accomplish pulling people out of misery. That was supposed to be what would replace economically the system of, of exploitation of the British Empire. And again, he worked very hard with his allies like Henry Wallace to make it happen. But as soon as Roosevelt died, again, no autopsy, um, Henry Wallace was purged. A lot of his, his leading anti-imperial compatriots who understood the, the Wall Street London nexus behind fascism were purged. And, um, and the world, basically, America turned crazy and... Um, People were ratting on their neighbors to the FBI saying, I think my neighbor might be a, a Russian agent and kids were ratting on their, their parents to their teachers. And it was, it was insane. And really the, the fuel was uh, poured onto the fire by, by Hoover the whole time. Well, it sort of reminds me, not Hoover, but Roosevelt sort of reminds me then of uh, Putin sort of breaking script. Exactly. No, he's very much similar to that on so many levels. Um, and I think there's a reason why, the United States has been trying to run away from, or at least there's been an effort to destroy the memory of what Roosevelt actually did to combat Wall Street um, during the New Deal and, and afterwards. Um, and there was not a single celebration of Roosevelt's birthday in any of the mainstream press agencies, except in Russia um, a couple of years ago. You know, all of the Russian press were, were invoking the image of Franklin Roosevelt. Um, in, indicating that Russia understood their history better than the West does, or the U.S. does, and was at, in some ways being more um, honorable than, or more patriotic. Uh, Russia was being acting like more patriotic Americans than, than Americans were, who have all been do, induced to believe this this fabricated lie that's been built up as a narrative over seventy plus years, which is this lie that Roosevelt was a Keynesian. Um, a follower of John Maynard Keynes, who in fact was an enemy of Roosevelt. And Roosevelt had no respect for Keynes. He said he was a mathematical fetishist. Keynes said he, that Keynes after meeting Roosevelt said he was an economic incompetent. I guess it's just, it's naive, you know? I mean, a lot of people, we're, we're, we're people, we're regular civilians who have never really played in the corridors of real power. I haven't really played in any corridors of real power. I'm, I'm sort of somebody just trying to make sense of things as best as I can. And I think it's only when you, um, you, you find yourself in a management position and especially in a situation of politics that you start realizing that you, you have to be more smooth. You have to be more diplomatic. You can't show your cards. You often have to say things you don't think 
I mean, my God, yeah, this idea that we sometimes say things we don't believe is true in politics, or we go to events or clubs um, that we don't agree with the club's mandate or the event's mandate, but we have to go there either to get information, to network, to try to influence things in our favor in some way. Like, you know, we all kind of want a hero like we see on TV in the movies to come out and just like, you know, change the world and, and like just say all of the truth and just be all literal about it. And we'd love to hear it, but I could tell you in the real world uh, that actually exists, anybody who has ever acted that way gets killed really fast and gets nothing done and usually makes a bigger mess than uh, than the situation deserved. So yeah, Putin's a, a subtle operator and so is Roosevelt. They were subtle. There's definitely... There's certainly an ability that I'm seeing now to go outside of intellectual comfort zones like I've never seen before. And that's very, that's a precondition for real knowledge is the hunger, you, you know, to get, before you can, you can hunt and, and, and eat your food, you have to have the hunger. And most people have been induced to have no hunger, to just be complacent mm. and satisfied as little sheep for a very long time with their stability. Now they've come to realize that that promise of stability and that promise of abundance was a lie. And we're going into a period of serious civilizational turmoil. It's a storm, um, and we we cannot we cannot any longer take for granted a lot of these things that we had. So again, I, I think the hunger to figure out the truth of things, to figure out workable functional solutions, is quite high. In the same measure, um, controlled false narratives are also uh, brimming out of the wazoo. You know, like the oligarchy prepares for situations where people will think outside the box and they will create. Um, as many nets to capture those fish that, 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 that leap outside of the big net into smaller nets where now they think, aha, I've got something that's off the beaten path that properly explains, you know, everything that's causing my world problems. But, you know, you have now shape-shifting lizards as your twist or whatever. Like there's a whole variety of, of uh, deceits or Trojan horses that are, are, are brought into these explanatory narratives that then undermine the 99% of truthful facts, which are what are the sort of the honey that, that, that brings people to the, the poison. So um, that's, that's important. I, my biggest concern is people's lack of, of mental self-discipline right now. Mm. There's, there's a tendency to want to just get the right answer, like get the, without working for it or building your mind muscles up to earn that answer. Um, which results in people often becoming swayed into QAnon uh, subcults or other things that yeah. are otherwise controlled op oppositions or controlled uh, uh, nets. That's a problem. But I think there's still, despite that, uh, a very strong uh, movement of that that I do see is reviving some of the better qualities of what we had seen coming out of people like Martin Luther King's civil rights movement. I saw it in Canada with the the Freedom Convoy process, which was put down through violence, but at no point did that movement of millions of people respond in violence the way that they were expected to do in order to justify the sorts of draconian uh, totalitarian measures. It was, it was a movement that was very self-disciplined in that sense, despite the fact that it, it could have been lit on fire. And there were, there were people who were unhinged who could have been induced to, to be the Robespierre provocateurs that would justify a Napoleon. That didn't happen. And, and it, 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 was a proof of principle, but I don't know exactly 
mm. what to answer your question is going to be required for people to finally wake up to this actual insidious deep state operation inside of the heart of America. I don't know what the answer is to that. I the way I tend to look at the oligarchies um, at these secret societies and what the oligarchies upper echelons actually believe in. Um, I see it as a bit of um, a controlled form of insanity um, that has persevered over a very long period of time based on its momentum. There's a certain power of momentum that has maintained its continuity, but ultimately it's a technique of perverting their own children. Because I mean, one of the big, one of the big tr problems, if you're an oligarch, a, a higher level oligarch, um, and there's only a limited amount of bloodlines and families at the top of the echelons, right? You know, that, that have been maintaining their, their family continuities, their, their property rights, their, their fondies over many generations. And some I'm sure mm -hmm. can trace their lineage back to the days of, to the upper echelons of, of the Roman Imperium and before that, I'm, I'm sure. But, uh, one of the big obsessions that you put a lot of time into is thinking about how do you ensure that your institution will maintain itself despite the fact that it demands unhuman modes of conduct in your children and managers, the managerial class that will maintain your system after you die. They think transgenerationally. And so there has been a cultivation of a perverse form of education for the elites, um, grooming for the elites, um, both as children and as they go out having suffered and you got to kind of feel sorry for some of these these royals who are born to these families and I, I, I kind of do despite the fact that they're pathetic um, but they're expected then to fulfill uh, a mandate which the the creation of these rites of initiation kind of have served as a form of self lobotomization or self brainwashing, uh, self hypnosis for the, the, the next generation to become indoctrinated into so that they again, feel like they are instruments for a higher divine will that is more than themselves that they themselves don't fully understand, but they're too busy, um, with their unbounded hedonism to be able to have the inner poise to think about, well, what is wrong with their thinking? Because they're just completely sensually possessed as, as most of these elites seem to be very much out of control of their libidos, um, or their libidos are out of control or indominance. Um, so I, I don't think that they really do have secret knowledge though they do worship. I do believe that they believe that they do. I do believe that they believe that they can get all sorts of weird, nasty energy from their victims, their sacrificial victims. And I do believe that they believe in, uh, in all sorts of demonic forces. Um, and they, they, they probably not probably, they do, uh, believe in a Luciferian doctrine as Albert Pike even says in his letters, um, that, that are, um, outlined in our, our documentary. Um, Annie Bassan, Alice Bailey also, you know, find their own spins to justify why Lucifer is the greatest good. Um, these are leaders of the Theosophist Society, you know, of uh, Madame Blavatsky. Um, so Anton LaVey also. Also Anton LaVey. Oh, yeah. LaVey and, and his higher mm. up. I mean, LaVey is a lower order guy, but, you know, yeah, he, he does. The Church of Satan and, and people like Aleister Crowley, who's a little bit higher up in the rungs. They definitely are into you know, they, they showcase exactly what are the perversities of the oligarchy. But again, I, I see it as a, as a, as a perversity. I don't see it as real secret knowledge, 
but it has power in the sense of the the belief that causes actions to be um put in a certain direction always they will religiously always do certain things the same way no matter what which is why this oligarchy has come close to their transhuman new world order on many occasions in the past even before the word transhumanism was coined they still wanted it it was just called you know feudalism um managed by a master class of beyond humans right who would who expected their slaves to perceive them as if they were gods or you know other forms of supernatural deities that you couldn't possibly contend with because you're just a lowly mortal you know how do you measure up you might as well just try to like enjoy your cud on your plantation you talking cow fool you know be happy <laughs> with your little thing um so they've always wanted that sort of thing and, and i again i look at well what is subverted their their ability to get it to actualize that and for there i have to look at the the power and what is special about the united states is the only country which successfully or the earliest country or colony that successfully not only broke free but also established a new type of structure of cultural economic and political systems premised around the rejection of hereditary power and the idea that all men are created equal um and also that that the purpose of of econ economic activity should be premised around the increase of the 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 powers of the minds of the people to make discoveries and inventions and apply them to leap over the limits of the growth and whenever we do that and whenever the 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 political economic system services that power that capacity to make creative discoveries of the laws of nature translate those like i said into new inventions and discoveries we are always able to create abundance leap the way animals cannot do outside of those limits the constraints that maintain our carrying capacity as as animals and we can have not only more people but at a higher standard standard of living and we're happier when we can do that and but it requires sort of a dance between the political economic structures and the cultural structures that have to always be to joined morally because if 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 the moral culture is detached from the technological component of society then you're going to always have technology used as a tool by the empire to enslave us rather than as a tool to liberate us so the, the cultural advance always has to grow in pace you know and that off that that has not happened in in, in the last few decades especially okay so matt on a mm. on a on a battlefield of the information war you're looking at at the horizon what do you see well i see a very insecure oligarchy that is not acting from a position of strength at this moment um i think that their their new world order script is not um following the the blueprint that it was expected to follow if you go back in time and look to maybe like 1992 for example at a time when the soviet union was disintegrating and the new world order was being celebrated by bush senior and kissinger and joe biden you know and and the idea was that, that was the end of history we've we, we we're there it's 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 over the game is over we've 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 won the world <laughs> is sort of the messaging of the of 1992 and it was just a question now of pulling the last pieces together you know making nato become a global force expanding it around you know breaking up russia and china into little micro states under the control of the imf the ways that big new brzezinski laid out in 97 um china you know they had the same thing around each little mini ethnic block would become its own separate federation under the imf control 
George Soros even had their people controlling both Russia and throughout the 80s, China was under the full control of George Soros's um, operative, Zhao Jiang, ran a, ran a damn think tank with Soros. This is the guy who was the head of the, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so, I mean, they had full controls, right? The transhumanists were being brought in. David Rockefeller was being brought in. It was like a party for the, the New World Order or for the, the oligarchy. And, uh, and I think today, especially since... Vladimir Putin's famous um, Munich security conference speech of 2007, where he, you know, pretty much laid out the fact that the NATO's growth and military encirclement of Russia um, is recognized as um, a push for a one world government. And we don't accept that. So he began to really um, push for an alternative security architecture premised around the defense of sovereign nation states as primary in the buildup or the, the the conception of international law. Unfortunately, at the time, he couldn't do it very much because he didn't have, he was still, I mean, Russia was still very much subjugated by the Western created oligarchs um, that were built up in the 1990s, especially. And it didn't really have any economic sovereignty. It was, it, it was still, to, the, to this day, its central bank is still very much beholden to the IMF and Bank of International Settlements as a private central bank, although there are still patriots who are beginning to exert more influence over that institution. But he couldn't get a lot done economically. Militarily, he was doing a better job. Um, him and the, the nationalists of Russia were doing a better job of purging the CIA from controlling um, departments within the military and the FSB, the, the Russian intelligence service. Um, so that was becoming more nationally directed, um, culturally, Pharmaceutically, there were still a lot of Western controls over a variety of components of the Russian deep state. So, so anyway, he, he began that process. It took China a few more years uh, um, to, to start uh, breaking from their, what was expected of them, of the New World Order script as well. I, but they did a good job around 2009 with India. And I think that that was the first time there was a big crack in what was expected. In you know, in 2009 was the uh, COP the COP 14 World Government Summit um, in December, and that was a summit which Angela Merkel, Obama, Sarkozy at the time were all heralding as the 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 the, the final solution to the climate crisis, where there was expected we were they were supposed to get internationally signed treaties to create agree upon new global mechanisms to enforce climate or carbon reduction uh production around all of the world according to these absurd climate models that have no bearing in reality right and uh, <clears throat> and that was supposed to basically be what would usher in the slow depopulation killing of like 80 percent of the world population were these new global globalist mechanisms the reason why that didn't work is the delegations of Russia, sorry, of China and of India did kind of like what Franklin Roosevelt did in the 19, in 1933 at the London conference that I mentioned, when Roosevelt just commanded his American delegation to just not participate in anything. They did the same thing. They locked themselves in a room for the entire conference and Hillary Clinton and Obama were like banging on the door, trying to get in, uh, begging them to come back out to the negotiating table and they wouldn't do it. So they, I think there was a, a recognition that when, Western oligarchs talk about overpopulation. What they primarily have in mind are India, China, and Africa, the darker skin. You know, it's a racist policy still. Um, and uh, some African countries also joined up with India and China at that time. 
Um, but it, it took a few more years still for 2013 to roll around in the Belt and Road Initiative to be unleashed by uh, by Xi Jinping, who had also also begun a, a sort of crackdown against the Chinese deep state beginning in 2012, as soon as he was brought in, um, which has been quite interesting to watch. A lot of World Economic Forum operatives who generally tend to operate through Shanghai, which was always sort of the uh, the David Rockefeller influenced zone uh, within China around uh, Zhang Zemin and the Shanghai clique. Jack Ma comes out of that, for example. Um, that purging was really begun in 2013. Very high level people, traders uh, have been in some cases executed in China uh, who were part of this Soros Western apparatus. So there's been a fight. Um, and I think today's configuration, if the oligarchy was as powerful as they want us to believe they are, as you say, the Blackfield people often believe every side is controlled, uh, they already would have won. It, it, we wouldn't be here having this conversation. Um, the reason why we have this space and this time that, that has been you know, won for us has a lot to do with the fact that Russia and China and India increasingly have chosen to exit the, the unipolar system, where, which was supposed to be the controlled demolition of the economy, like they did in 1929. They were, they, they were planning on doing this in 2009, when the first economic collapse could have taken down the entire system. But um, they had to postpone that because, again, they need everybody in the same building when it's, when it's lit on fire and demolished. So right now you have competing ideas of what the replacement operating system is going to be. Obviously, in the transatlantic and the Five Eyes, and unfortunately, South Africa is sort of walking in two worlds right now. Um, we have the death cult, which is really religiously committed to their scripts that they, they don't know how to negotiate or budge from. Um, they're even willing, I believe, to go to, to actual nuclear war. In, or like right now, they're, they're using the threat of nuclear war against Russia and China to like threaten them to get back in the building. Um, but I think they're willing to launch it. But then you have a faction, you have evidence of faction fights within the oligarchy too, where, you know, people like Jeffrey Sachs, who is in no way a good guy. He's a high level manager who managed the perestroika of the 90s of Russia. He's coming out as a voice of reason because that's his assignment. He's representing a faction of the oligarchy who recognizes that their self-interest would not be maintained by lighting the world on nuclear fire and would rather live to fight another day. It doesn't mean that they're becoming good. It just means that they think that they should abort this current trajectory and change gears, kind of like what the British aristocracy did after a, a certain policy fight in the 1930s, when a big chunk, a big faction of the, of the British nobility wanted to continue full throttle with their fascist Nazi program. You know, Edward VIII was a, the, the Nazi king was a big part of that that design. And then another faction was like, well, Hitler's kind of going off the reservation a little bit. He kind of wants to be the, the top dog in our new world order. He's supposed to be our junior partner. You know, we're not supposed to be responsive to him. And uh, and so they, they, you know, that faction won the day and they, they fought hard to abort their Frankenstein monster. And I think they've created more Frankenstein monsters today than ever before in history that they don't fully control in a sense, like Zelensky is calling, you know, <laughs> they created a total Nazi Frankenstein monster in Ukraine where Zelensky, the idiot, um, went and called for NATO to activate their Article 5 when a Ukrainian missile would hit a Polish farm and killed two people. He started like yelling at the rooftops. Now it's world war between NATO and Russia. It's like they don't want that either. Like even the oligarchy doesn't really want that. 
that's like a real like last resort thing. So they're like, shut up, shut up. Even Biden had to sound like the same guy, the same guy in the room, right? He's like, no, we don't actually agree with that assessment. Um, so I think the oligarchy again, they 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 try to project an image of being these immortal gods of Olympus, but they're really more like the emperor that has no clothes. They, they're they're a lot more insecure than than we think. Where can I watch your documentary, and where can I follow your work? Yeah, most certainly. Uh, easiest way to find it would be to go to CanadianPatriot.org, which is also where you'd find a lot of my work and my wife's work. We also, and you'll you'll find the the documentary easily. Uh, there's like sliding banners at the top of that that website, which will say watch our films. Then there's other documentaries we've done too. We're we're working on several more as we speak. Um, and uh, our books as well. Cynthia has just written a new book on. The, the empire on which the black sun never set on the origins of fascism uh, from the late 19th century, early 20th century uh, via the halls of British intelligence, how, and oh, it brings in some Masonic discussion too, and where, uh, where fascism actually was concocted as a new synthetic cult, a political cult of the 20th century and beyond. Uh, that's available on my website, as are my books on the Clash of the Two Americas and the Untold History of Canada. You can find those all very easily all over the website. So that's that's something people can do. Matt Derrett, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you, Jerm. My name is Jerm. This is Jerm Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.